Welcome, everybody, to the next episode of The Intersection, a series on the IQT podcast where we discuss topics in, relating to the intersection of technology and national security. Today's guest is Dr. Michael Vickers, a former Special Forces officer and operations officer in the CIA's clandestine service. From 2011 to 2015, Dr. Vickers served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, and from 2007 to 2011, he served as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Special Operations, Low-Intensity Conflict, and Interdependent Capabilities. He's also worked at Inkytel since 2015 and currently serves as a senior fellow here. In June, he published a new book titled, By All Means Available, Memoirs Over Life in Intelligence and Special Operations and Strategy, recounting his remarkable 40-plus year career. Today, we're going to discuss some of the major themes from the book and hear a firsthand account of, about his days as a Green Beret, to, to his vision for victory in Afghanistan, to his role in waging America's war with Al-Qaeda, again, at the highest levels of government. So, Mike, welcome. Good to see you. Good to see you, Steve. Yeah. So, um, a lot of different topics to get into here, but uh, uh, let, me, let me start with the first question. Why, why were you interested in writing this book? Well, three reasons, really. Um, one, you know, I was fortunate enough over the course of my career to participate in three major events. In one case, uh, kind of a world changing event, uh, our defeat of the Soviets in Afghanistan in the 1980s that helped bring an end to the Cold War. And then later, when I was a senior defense and intelligence official, several of our campaigns against Al Qaeda worldwide and then the operation that brought justice to Osama bin Laden. And the second reason, though, besides my duty to what I felt history, um, was duty to the American people. You know, I spent my life keeping the nation's secrets. Uh, there's a lot we, for obvious reasons we can't say about them. Uh, but where we can, I think there's a duty upon our top intelligence and defense leadership um, to explain why we did what we did to try to keep America safe, uh, to make sure we sustain the support of the American people. And so that was the second objective. And then the third and perhaps most important was my duty to my um, fellow national security professionals, and particularly those who will um, take up um, uh, the cudgel going forward. Uh, the world will be a much better place. It's getting uh, more dangerous year by year. It'll be a much better place. If we prevail in this new Cold War, uh, we find ourselves in with China and Russia and Russia's aggression in Ukraine. And so I want to do what I can to pass on lessons I've learned and, and help those uh, current and future professionals win. Fantastic. So you spoke of your uh, duty to the American people. Um, uh, let's go back to the beginning. Why did you ultimately choose to uh, uh, enlist in the military and, and, and choose a life of service? So I wanted to be a baseball or football player. And when I realized that wasn't that happening. That was a very a noble goal, by the way. <laughs> yes. I, I thought, what else am I going to do with my life? And a, uh, a high school teacher my senior year slipped a copy of the New York Times uh, in front of me in the school library and said, you might be interested in this. And it was a story about CIA secret paramilitary operations in Laos during the Vietnam War supporting uh, Hmong tribesmen. And I thought, leading secret armies, that sounds kind of cool. And you know, of course, I'd seen a lot of James Bond movies. And so I thought being a Green Beret, you know, this was toward the end of the Vietnam War, would be a good way to start with an ultimate aim of going into CIA. And then things took off after that. 
That's great. So uh, you joined, uh, became a Green Beret. Tell me about that training uh, process because that's uh, uh, legendary. Yeah. So, you know, after 9-11, our uh, uh, Green Berets, you know, had extensive training, but really went into combat, all our special operations forces and ground forces. And it was kind of nonstop for 10 years. In my day in the Cold War, um, coming out of Vietnam, we didn't have as much uh, uh, operation, so we had even more training. And so I trained on everything from, you know, weapons, demolitions, guerrilla warfare, uh, counterterrorism tactics, freefall parachuting, advanced mountain climbing, uh, even trained uh, with a backpack nuclear weapon to, you know, in the event of war to parachute into Eastern Europe with this thing. Uh, seemed like a good idea when I was 23, uh, maybe not so much later. But uh, uh, so lots of training that in foreign languages and, uh, you know, the training uh, tests you physically and mentally, you know, stresses you a lot um, physically, makes you think on your feet, uh, and, but, uh, but uh, ultimately rewarding. And then uh, what led you to move from there to uh, uh, CIA? You know, so it was my view. I'd gone from being a special forces soldier to an officer and commanded a, a counterterrorism intelligence unit. Uh, and uh, I thought that, you know, consistent with why I joined in the first place, I wanted uh, to belong to organizations where individuals could really make a big difference in national security. I thought that it was more likely to come sooner uh, in CIA. They were really the frontline instrument of the Cold War. Uh, you know, we did a lot of things through covert action that we wouldn't do through overt military means, with you know, given the risk of escalation to a broader war. And that plus collecting intelligence, you know, in some of the most difficult places, really seemed like a great challenge for me after I had done uh, all the special forces stuff. So that's why I went to CIA. So uh, Russia invades Afghanistan. Uh, how did you get tapped uh, 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 to, to play the role that you did? So I was really lucky. I, uh, you know, I'd come into CIA with a lot of special forces experience, which set me apart a little bit. And then early in my training, I had an extensive training program for about a year and a quarter. Um, I had two special assignments. I was picked out of training to go uh, for the invasion of Grenada, you know, this tiny little Caribbean island we, we invaded in 1983 when we had uh, medical students trapped there during a, a communist uh, coup against other communist leaders. And, uh, and then I had a special assignment dealing with uh, counterterrorism uh, after the Beirut bombings. You know, Hezbollah terrorists had blown up our embassy and then Marine barracks in 1983. And those two things and my special forces experience uh, came to the attention of the um, senior CIA leaders who were overseeing the Afghanistan covert action program. Uh, and then they picked me for, for that job. And I really called it the job of a lifetime. You know, the budget had just been quadrupled uh, by Congress. Uh, CIA didn't ask for it. Uh, Congress uh, decided that we really needed to step up our effort. And uh, so I thought, well, I get to fight our main enemy uh, rather than, you know, his proxy somewhere uh, with this dramatically increased budget, which already was the biggest covert action program in CIA and would get even bigger. And, uh, you know, that's kind of how it came about. So uh, it's considered one of our great successes in our military and intelligence uh, operational history. Uh, 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 what worked? You know, what was it about the uh, 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 the operation that, that, that made it 
that uh, enabled its success. So it was really about speed and scale and then achieving um, escalation dominance. So, you know, as I mentioned, the budget had been quadrupled and a series of events, you know, led to a, a presidential review of the program, right, as I was taking over. And that included uh, reviewing our strategy and objectives. And up until that time, nobody thought we could win. Uh, and so our a political objective was just to make the Soviet occupation as costly as possible. Okay. And then in March 1985, President Reagan, I helped work on this, but signed a classified national security decision directive that said our aim ought to be to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan and had this phrase attached to it, by all means available, uh, which I liked when I was a CIA officer in my 30s. And so it became the title of my book. Um, and so we really ramped up then uh, the, and, and enabled the resistance to Afghan resistance to conduct more operations, more complex operations. So everything increased within 12 months by an order of magnitude. The amount of weapons and ammunition we were putting in, the training we were given, uh, and then it also increased in quality of things. We started introducing Western weapons, uh, most famously the Stinger anti-aircraft missile, but a British anti-aircraft one as well, and some other Western weapons. Frequency hopping radios so that the Soviets couldn't uh, direction find um, the Afghan resistance. And that really increased the cost of the Soviets. And the, Mikhail Gorbachev had come to power same time President Reagan signed this directive in March 1985, and he gave the Soviets a year to 18 months to win the war, which had been going on for five years at that point. And we essentially out-escalated them. You know, we, um, they were in worse shape uh, 12 months later than they were uh, when he gave that order. And so then Gorbachev decided to uh, uh, start withdrawing from Afghanistan in 1986 and was out completely by early 89. So this was roughly 40 years ago. Uh, um, what lessons can we take? What's still true about, you know, uh, 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 the environment you're operating in then that's true today as we think about the Russian conflict with Ukraine? Yeah. Know? So, you know, this was a covert action supporting an insurgency with an army that was occupying the whole country. Ukraine is a conventional war now in a more um, uh, congested uh, confined battle space, you know, in Eastern Ukraine and, and Southern Ukraine. Um, and so its characteristics are different, more artillery, but a lot of the principles are the same. The need to achieve a form of escalation dominance at the conventional level, uh, uh, is still there. So, you know, slowly we've gotten there in terms of the quantity and quality of weapons we've provided and some of the training, but it's, it's, it's taken some time. And so speed, this other factor I talked about besides scale and scope, um, you know, we haven't moved necessarily as fast as, as, as we should. We've got a great coalition. We had that in the 1980s. We had China, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Egypt, uh, the United Kingdom and several others on our side. You know, today it's different players, mostly European, but uh, that coalition uh, capability is very important. So, you know, and, and then the other thing that's very much in common is you need people willing to fight. And we had that in the Afghans in the 80s, and we have it with the Ukrainians right now who are fighting for their existence. We, we absolutely have it with the Ukrainians. It's unbelievable what they're doing. 
Um, so one of the criticisms of the uh, uh, current uh, effort in Ukraine is that the coalition has trouble coming to agreement and making decisions. And, and thus, that's one of the reasons why we're perhaps moving slower than uh, uh, we otherwise should be. Yet you mentioned that in your experience in Afghanistan, you also had a similar coalition that you probably had to manage at some level. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, expectations, you know, motivations, all that sort of thing. Uh, uh, what are your thoughts on the challenge? Because that's absolutely as we think about potential next conflict, right? In 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 uh, uh, in in Asia, in some form or another, we will be operating once again as part of a coalition here. How do you think about uh, uh, operating and managing a coalition in, in one of these uh, operations? Yeah, well, as Winston Churchill said, you know, the only thing worse than fighting with a coalition is fighting without one, you know, right. and it's it's part of the American way of war that we, we go with allies and partners, and it's an, an advantage of ours, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And so during the 80s, you know, we had to get the Chinese to escalate, the Pakistanis, the frontline state who was taking a lot of risks, the Saudis were matching us dollar for dollar, they had to agree to this you know, tenfold increase in program funding uh, within 12 months, uh, you know, et cetera. British to supply, you know, advanced weapons uh, that would be traced back to them uh, and then finally the U.S. to do it. Um, and, you know, so it's similar in that respect. You have some coalition partners in Ukraine who are um, very aggressive and, and bullish. Uh, I think they've generally been right. And others who, uh, you know, want this to end and, you uh, um, uh, but don't want Ukraine to lose. And so you have challenges about the objectives, you know, where we really in this to not have Ukraine lose. In other words, more or less defend what it has now or a little more, or to actually win and take back its territory um, and, um, and, you know, and defeat the Russian forces. And, uh, and you know, and so in some cases we've moved slower uh, for coalition reasons, sometimes because of our own political decisions as well. So in that sense, it's a little different um, um, from the 80s. But, you know, I think we're I think we're getting there. So this podcast sits at the intersection of national security and technology. We talked a lot about national security. Talk to me a little bit about technology. How has technology evolved from uh, uh, your experience in the 80s in Afghanistan to uh, uh, what you see from your various perspectives? Uh, yeah, so uh, it, certain, it certainly played a role. You know, it was recognized in the in the 80s that Western weapons were just superior. You know, the Israelis clobbered Syrian air defenses in 82. We used some of these advanced technologies to uh, defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan. Um, and one of the reasons the Soviet military backed Gorbachev was they knew their economy needed to be rehabilitated or they would never compete over the long term. Um, and that was a function of also of technologies the U.S. had deployed in Europe for deterrence purposes, precision strike weapons, sensors, a range of things that the Soviets knew they couldn't compete with and would obsolete their World War II style strategy. Um, the pace of technological change is even greater today, far greater today, though, than it was then. You know, so while it had, you know, some impacts on war and um, some impacts on relative economic power uh, during the Cold War, um, you know, it really is the central competition, in my view, right now between us and China going forward, you know, economic and technological, you know, how technological turns into both economic power and national security power. 
Um, but at its core, it's really these revolutions uh, in technology. Three big ones, as you know, you know, artificial intelligence and autonomy, quantum computing and other quantum technologies and synthetic bi biology, but a lot of others too, you know, from batteries to nuclear fusion that really are going to transform the world over the next 20 years. And the, the winner of that is likely going to be the winner. So you get that, uh, uh, which is unusual for someone who grew up in the military, you know, and was not a technologist at first. Uh, uh, um, do you think that the defense and intelligence leadership here in the United States understands the importance of technology that you just uh, articulated? Yeah, technological advantage has become, you know, the last seven, since the end of World War II, really, you know, key to the American way of war. You know, sometimes it confers big advantages, other times not so much, depending on the the, the role. But uh, I think at the grand strategy level, uh, you know, they increasingly realize this, you know, whether it translates all into the military systems or whether we do enough with national R&D, you know, to translate this into policy. You know, we spend a quarter of our GDP as a percentage of GDP today on national R&D that we did in the 50s and 60s when we had the great boom, you know, fueled by the, the space race and and, and other things. And, uh, uh, but I, but I think there is growing awareness that this is really what matters. And, uh, and then, you know, we'll see how well we can implement it. And then what are you seeing in terms of the role of commercial technology developed by non-traditional, you know, vendors, uh, for, for the defense and intelligence world, uh, playing in Ukraine and, and how does that translate going forward if there are conflicts in Asia and other places like that? Yeah, so these big transformative technologies are really outside the traditional defense or national security industrial base. And, uh, uh, you know, and they may have different impacts on national security, but if they produce great wealth, you know, that's an, in, an indirect but very important effect on national security. You can just buy more of whatever you want to buy. And, you know, all of them have national security implications to a greater or lesser extent. Um, and um, um, let me let me just um, uh, so, pause. No, Go ahead. Uh, that's a great point. So, if commercial technology and technology in general is going to play a greater and greater role, how do we get? How do we educate either folks in Congress or folks in the Pentagon who didn't grow up in a technology-oriented uh, 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 environment? Uh, understanding the potentials and uh, uh, strategies that might be involved in some of these technologies. Yeah, so the broader problem, I think, is technological literacy in general. Uh, yeah, and then the, the challenge um, more is that a lot of these technologies, really the critical ones, are outside the traditional defense sphere. So even if you knew submarine warfare technologies, things that go into that, or stealth technologies for aircraft, or maybe even things that start to move over to the commercial sector, networking technologies. There's still a big chunk that's outside that traditional realm. That, uh, uh, But more broadly, it's making sure we have more um, technical talent that it, it, in very influential policy positions in the White House and in our top agencies. You know, our two new war fighting domains, space and cyber, are fundamentally technological. You know, they're, they're, uh, and, you know, and that's just one aspect of the, of the problem. So, um, 
How we do that, you know, we did a good job of that in the 50s, partly as a result because we had so many scientists from MIT and elsewhere who helped us win World War II. You know, they, they rallied like other Americans um, to the cause. That's more of a challenge today. There's a bigger gulf um, between the private sector, the high-tech sector, and, uh, you know, the national security establishment. And it's something, uh, you know, our political leadership really has to work on. So, so one of the other areas that you spent sort of your your career really uh, uh, driving and enhancing is the alignment uh, between the military and the intelligence communities. Uh, uh, how do you think we're doing uh, uh, with, with regard to that alignment? You know, in the station, where can we go from here? Yeah, so there's a couple aspects to that. You know, one intelligence or first line of defense and. Defense has the lion's share of the intelligence community and the intelligence budget. Uh, you know, there's a few that lie outside it, CIA being the biggest one, but FBI and then um, smaller components that are inside other cabinet departments. But, you know, defense has NSA, NRO, DIA, NGA, and then the service and combatant uh, command intelligence organizations. And so making sure that uh, our intelligence community, of which defense is a big part, can support our national leadership, but also our warfighting needs, you know, as a challenge for the top leadership, something I wrestled with a lot with USD when I was Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence with the Director of National Intelligence, uh, Jim Clapper at the time. And then operationally, CIA and DOD, or our armed forces, are really our two main operational arms um, to do things. And so, and they're often at the leading edge of technology. And so cooperation in those spheres, uh, operationally, what's the right mix of that or who should take the lead on something depending on policy preferences. So for instance, we did the Bin Laden raid with military forces under CIA authorities. You know, it's just one example of the, of the um, uh, marriage, if you will. But it's also an acquisition and technology development. You know, we have common needs a lot of times. So the relation, it's something I worked on pretty hard, given that I had, you know, history in both camps. And uh, it's, it's very important to the successful functioning of our national security establishment. So you've gone from being sort of the young leader to the old wise uh, uh, veteran here. What, uh, what advice or perspective? This is not old. Yeah. <laughs> what advice or perspective do you have for, uh, the young up and coming next generation of leaders uh, uh, with regard to the intersection of technology and national security. Yeah. So as I said, I think it's really the central competition. And so uh, you, you, whether, whatever field you're in, in national security, you have to be cognizant of these things, you know, whether it's little drone, if you're an infantryman that are flying over your positions all the time now, as we see in Ukraine, you know, and that can be lethal to you to how to exploit, um, various technologies. And as you move up the ranks and broaden, you know, things like space and cyber and enabled by AI and maybe quantum, um, you know, just are fundamentally technologically and cutting edge uh, uh, technology. So, you know, it's it would be critical to anyone's future. And then I would say, too, that, um, you know, more broadly, um, you know, find something that you're passionate about and you can make a difference. You know, too many people, even at the top levels of government, um, manage rather than transform when it's necessary or lead. 
And, you know, if you're given responsibility as you move up in your careers, you know, make a difference. That doesn't mean do anything reckless, but, uh, you know, uh, that's what our great entrepreneurs do. That's what, uh, you know, uh, visionary business leaders do it. And we need it in national security just as much. Great. Well, thank you, Mike, for uh, uh, joining us here today. Uh, uh, I think your uh, observations and stories have been fascinating. We appreciate everyone tuning in today's episode of The Intersection. Please uh, make sure you subscribe to the IQT podcast so you don't miss out on future content and leave us a review or comment to let us know what you think or what content you'd be interested to see us cover in a future podcast. I also encourage you to check out IQT's website, www.iqt.org, to explore more content about the cutting edge technology to support and deliver insights and capabilities essential for national security mission impact. Mike, thank you very much. uh, And thank you to our listeners for joining us at the intersection today. My pleasure.